He was born in like 1906 or something, you know? So I was at orchestra and I said, oh, we're doing really good. We're in doing our, our second album. We're doing another album right now. And he stopped and he looked at me, he goes, what was wrong with the first one? <laughs> and I'm like, I had to explain to him. I had to explain to him. Jack and I have known each other for a long time. And what I love about Jack, he's always smiling and happy on or off the stage. He's a joyful, fun, smart, super positive dude that I love hanging and playing music with. Now, Jack started playing guitar when he was eight years old when his parents gave him a $2 plastic ukulele. His first gig was with his brother, and they called themselves the JBs. Jack was 10 and his brother was 12, and they put on Beatle wigs and did Beatles songs, of course, at Rotary Club meetings and the Kiwanis Club functions, and I even know what those are. Boy, can I relate, because me and my brother had a band, but we didn't, we, we didn't wear the Beatle wigs. Now, check this out. Jack attended San Diego State University's pre-med student before even becoming a rock star. I'd let him work on me, I guess. He's best known for being a member in bands such as Rubicon, Night Ranger, and Damn Yankees. Now, Rubicon was formed in San Francisco by Jerry Martini in the late 70s, who was the original member of Sly and the Family Stone. Brad Gillis was the guitar player in Rubicon, and they made two records before they split up. Now, Brad Jack and the touring drummer in Rubicon, Kelly Keege, eventually formed Night Ranger, which I believe was called Ranger at first. But anyway, Jack played with Night Ranger from 1980 to 1989, and again from 1996 till present, and has sold millions of records and accumulated several hit singles. Next, Jack started this band called Damn Yankees with guitarist Ted Nugent. The other two original members of the band were Tommy Shaw, who plays with Sticks, and Michael Cordelloni, the drummer who plays with Leonard Skinner. They were a supergroup that released their first album in 1990 and sold two million copies. Jack also has an extensive solo career, which includes two solo albums and has a long history of recording for and working with a lot of legendary rock stars. Night Ranger was one of the first big video bands on MTV with over 10 number one hit videos. And they also can be heard on TV shows like The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, American Dad, Glee, Grey's Anatomy, and Parks and Recreation. And the band have also had music featured in video games such as Rock Band, Guitar Hero, and Grand Theft Audio, plus hit Broadway musical Rock of Ages, the Oscar-nominated film Boogie Nights, one of my favorites, and other feature films such as Friday the 13th, Teachers, 16 Candles, and The Secret of My Success. Man, damn, so they got a good publicist or publisher. Someone's getting their stuff placed. Jack also appeared on Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood album. In the 1990s, he co-wrote four Aerosmith songs with Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Tommy Shaw. Jack also has written songs for Cher, Alice Cooper, Roger Daltrey, Journey, Vince Neil, Ozzy Osbourne, Styx, to name just a few. Jack, did I leave anything out? <laughs> well, I'm such a I'm such a likable guy. Now, come on, you know that. I mean, God, Kenny, it's great to see you, man. Great to be here with you. Thanks for blowing smoke up my ass. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that's that's what this show's all about. <laughs> I love it. Once I do that, then I can get you to talk about anything. <laughs> there you go. You got that right. You got that right. So you're you're in your studio, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm in my sort of playroom. I have a room here that kind of like, you know, I play around with stuff. We were talking when we were playing, uh, and you said you, at one point, you had a big-ass studio, and then you downsized, right? Yeah, yeah. I had a, 
I had a ranch in Northern California, a 50 acre uh, ranch in Sonoma County. And um, we had that for, wow, wow, 35, almost 40 years. And when I turned 60, I said, my wife and I, Molly, we just celebrated, by the way, our 46th wedding anniversary yesterday. So, wow. Years, man. How about that, huh? That's probably a record in our, in our business, right? I mean, you could probably count the guys on one hand that, you know, whose wives you've been married that long. So, but anyway, so Molly and I decided, you know, we decided to like just sell everything and, and move. And we moved up to an island north of Seattle and we're just loving it up here, man. It's just wonderful and having a great time. And yeah, I had a massive studio. I mean, this is where Damn Yankees recorded. It's where I wrote all these songs with all these people. Tommy Shaw and I recorded our Shaw Blades records there. You know, I produced great white records there, Ted Nugent records there, you know, just tons of stuff. But after a while, it's like, man, I just, all you need is like one rack of stuff and a freaking computer and off you go, you know? So, I mean, I'm really happy with what I have here in my little fun room. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I get it. So now you're so upbeat. I mean, I just can't help but think that it has to have something to do with your upbringing. Were you just born happy and positive or was it, you know what I mean? Or was it like coming from your upbringing? My mom was a super positive woman. I don't know how she did it. She was like, my grandparents were like Serbian peasants. They came from, you know, Serbia to America in like 1912 or something like that. And my mom was actually born in Canada. But I mean, they were immigrants. They were all that kind of stuff. But my mom was the most happiest, fun-loving, just loved life, loved everything, everything. I mean, she had some tragedies in her life, man. Her first husband was killed in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge, you know? Whoa! You know, yeah. I mean, serious stuff. Then my brother died, you know, when he was 25 of a drug overdose and, and all that kind of stuff and, and crazy. And then my dad died. You know, she was just a happy person until she died and she was like 97, 97 when she died. And it's just a she was always that spirit, man, that like spirit that you could do anything and get anything accomplished. Whatever you want to do, you can do that. You know, that's what she instilled in me. I don't know. It's just kind of the way I've always been. I can relate to that. So my mom, she died at 95. Same thing. You know, and everybody's got tragedy in their life. I mean, our journey is all about what we learn through those experiences and tragedy. But yeah, my mom was that person to the life of the party right up to the last second, you know, and so. Yeah, I mean, but I have to say that has to have helped you. You know, you've got three big bands. I mean, if I were to start a band, I want to hire somebody I get along with. That's fun. So that probably had a lot to do with you constantly being in all these different bands because people, yeah, we want Jack in the band, right? Don't you think? Well, yeah, but I'm like you, Kenny. Like, I love playing all kinds of music. I mean, when I first moved, I took a leave of absence my fourth year of college. I was a pre-med student, right? I was going to be a doctor. I took a leave of absence. My fourth year, I moved to San Francisco and, you know, Jerry Martini brought me up the sax player for slide that found me. So, and the first thing he did was take me to the record plant studios in Sausalito to start, you know, to meet Sly. And then I go to Sly's house. I mean, I'm telling you, I did an audition when I was 20 years old at Sly Stone's house. And I swear to God, it was like a fucking Fellini movie. Can I say that? I shouldn't cuss. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Whatever you but want. I mean, Good. okay. I go in there and Jerry says, just Go in there and play your bass when they tell you to play your bass. And then we're going to get out of there right away. I'm like, okay, you know, you're a 20-year-old kid. You're bulletproof. You think you can do anything, right? So I go in there and we're sitting around and there's people hanging out and, and like other people jiving and music going and people are dancing and a scene, man, a serious scene. And then all of a sudden there's a hush. I swear to God, I'm not, I'm not making this up. There's a hush on everybody and everybody looks up to the staircase and down comes walking sly in this white robe you know, a woman on each arm, right? 
and he's walking down and we're all in there and he comes and he sits down and he sits in this big room and all the people come and line up all around in this big room, like, like a big family room or something. Right. And everybody's standing around all the things. And then slides like this, like this, you know, like this. And he leans over to one of his buddies. So the guy tells Jerry, it goes up to Jerry Martini says, blah, blah, blah. And Jerry comes up and he goes, go play. I'm like, play what? Oh, what do you want me to play? I'm like, Dad, what? What do I start to play? He said, just, just go play. This guy rolls a freaking twin reverb into the middle of the room with a guitar cord and my bass. And he goes, go play. And I'm like, well, okay. And so I get up and I go up to play. And back then, Kenny, I was definitely like, I was influenced by Larry Graham, the Brothers Johnson. I was slap style. Everything's so I get up there and I'm like, yeah, okay, check this out. And I just start going, I'm slapping and grooving and nobody's moving. Everybody's standing there like this in the room, looking at Sly. They're all looking at him like this. And I'm standing there going, well, I've just kept playing, man. You know, the hell with it. I'm like, you know, all that kind of stuff and everything like that. All of a sudden, Sly's standing around. All of a sudden, Sly starts going, starts jiving like that. Starts moving like this. All of a sudden, everybody around the room starts grooving, right? They start moving. And then Sly leans over to the roadie. I swear to God, it was just like Tom Hanks on Saturday Night Live. A roadie comes running in with like a clavinet, D6 clavinet, and plugs in another twin reverb. And all of a sudden, Sly starts going, and I'm like, we're slapping and everything like that. We're just jiving and jiving and everything's like fucking everybody's just down in the room, like dancing and woo, you know, and everything like this. This goes on for about like 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden just slides stops and goes, yeah. And you know, he just turns around and socks us out. He goes like this and, and he gets up and walks out of the room. And the guy goes over, you know, to talk to Jerry. And he says, tell him to come down to the studio tonight. Sausalito, you know, come down to the studio at the, the record plant. And I'm like, oh, cool. And by then, all these people are coming up to me and they're going, you know, hey, man, what's going on? All these all these fine looking women are coming up and going, hey, baby, what's happening, man? How are you doing it? I'm like, this is great. And Jerry goes, OK, we're going to go now. And I'm like, no, man, why don't we stand? And he just like grabs me and freaking pulls me out of the freaking place like we're leaving now. But it took me out of that place. And that night we we're in Sly Cutting. Nothing ever ended up on a record, but that we jammed all night with Sly. We played the next day. I was there for like three days, four days, just jamming away. And then Jerry formed, you know, Rubicon. And that's what happened. And nothing that Sly ever did at that time. He was pretty wild at that point. He was like, he was having a good old time. So nothing really got accomplished, you know, and everything like that. But that was my first indoctrination to the San Francisco music scene, huh? How about that from the frying pan to the freaking fire, right? Oh, my God. That's one of the greatest rock and roll stories. I mean, that's unbelievable. I can't compare that to another story just like that. That's it. But I, I remember going to see Sly when I was a kid and, you know, he was notoriously like two hours late, three hours late. Everybody was all, you know, messed up. And, uh, but I remember, oh my God. I mean, yeah. We'd be in the studio and there was two people. There was Sylvester Stewart and there was Sly Stone. Okay. So during the day he'd come in, I was with my cousin, a real good looking girl that lived in San Francisco and, and she, she went out to smoke cigarettes, you know, Sly's like, you know, lighting a cigarette for her. Just real nice. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Come on, let's check this out. I've got this thing I'm playing now. And it, okay, just about like seven, eight o'clock at night, the sun goes down. Some dude shows up with a freaking shoebox, you know? And the next thing we know, it's fucking Sly Stone. This vicious freaking, whoa, look out, you know? And that was the Dr. Jekyll, 
Mr. Hyde thing. God bless him, man. Some of the greatest, the, the most inspiring music that I ever heard in my life was the music off of those records. I mean, fra- I still listen to Fresh before we go on stage. The Sly Stone album, Fresh, with In Time, oh, yeah. If You Want Me to Stay, If It Were Left Up to Me. Yeah, no, I mean, just, I still, every, I know. you know, before I go on stage, I'm jamming that, man. I mean, that was some of the most amazing music. Yeah, you know, it's guys like that, James Brown, or even Prince, they just create a whole new style that nobody ever had. And you know the drummer, Andy Newmark? Of course. He, he played on the Fresh album, man. Yes. You That's know, some of my favorite licks, man. Yeah. Oh, hits that high head. There's a Mickey in the making of disaster. Oh, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Andy Newmark is a freaking saint as far as I'm concerned. Now, for people who don't know who Andy is, he was like a session guy in New York. And he was on tour with some, they were doing something in, in San Francisco. I can't remember who the artist was, but it was nothing like Sly. It was like, not Linda Ronsett, but some singer-songwriter. And he heard that Sly was looking for a drummer. He had some time between shows. He goes driving up to Sly's house, goes to the door. He says, I hear, and there's a big black guy saying, hey, what do you want? He says, I hear Sly's looking for a drummer. He says, wait a minute. Goes up. Long story short, he goes up. This is kind of in sync with what you're saying. He goes upstairs, Sly's in his room. He's got cowboy boots on and cowboy and maybe some shorts. He says, you play drums? He says, yeah, play for me. Just like what happened to you. Started playing, says, you got the gig. Then Danny went driving down and played his gig, and that's how he got the gig. It was like, same sort of thing, play. Unbelievable. Then Sly got up and started dancing. That's what it was. That's the way he was, man. That's the way he was. He knew music. He knew talent. He knew it from here, man. Sly was like all about the heart. And then it got all crazy with all of, you know, the drugs and everything like that. All right. So in those bands, those three bands, was there a democracy or was it like one leader? With Night Ranger and it was always like, you know, us against the world when we first started out. You know, we were a bunch of kids like in San Francisco, like, you know, wanting to be rock and rollers and play music and just hoping we could do a, a second album. I love this. This is classic, man. My wife's father, my father-in-law, John Menzies, Molly's dad, he was like, we did our first album, a Dog Patrol record, and it sold really well, a million records, something like that. And one day we were over there for dinner. They lived in San Francisco. We were over at dinner. He, they were big, fancy San Francisco folks. And he called me Junior, and he goes, well, Junior, uh, how's that orchestra of yours doing, that orchestra? He called it an orchestra, right? You know, right? Because he was born in like 1906 or something. You know? So how's that orchestra? And I said, oh, we're doing really good. We're in doing our, our second album. We're doing another album right now. And he stopped. And he looked at me, he goes, what was wrong with the first one? (laughs) And I'm like, I had to explain to him. I had to explain to him. I said, John, see, the idea is you keep doing, you know, you get to do a second album and third album. You know, that's the idea. You keep doing more records and everything like that. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was pretty cool. It's a transition from, you know, they didn't know what rock and roll was. Hell, we barely knew what rock and roll was. I don't know. I got got off on a jag on that. But with Night Ranger, it was always like a democracy. I mean, we'd all decide what was going on. There's certain songs that Kelly sang really well. His voice fit a certain song, like the ballads, stuff like that. And, and my song fit more of the rockers and everything like that. So it was pretty like present right there, like who could sing what and who would do what on what song. And Brad and Jeff with their guitars, they kind of traded off with solos and, and did all those things. And with the damn Yankees, yeah, it was, it was really the three of us. And I mean, Tommy and I, we knew each other. 
not really well, but we knew each other pretty well. And people could see like Tommy Shaw and Jack, you know, Tommy Shaw from Sticks, Jack Blaze from Night Ranger, but Ted Nugent, you know, it's this big personality. Yeah. You know? yeah. But Ted was, Ted was the opposite. He was like, yeah, do whatever, you know, whatever you guys want. Let's do whatever you do. Let's do this. Let's do that. I mean, check it out. When Tommy and I wrote the song, we kind of wrote the song high enough, right? The big, the big hit off yeah. the album. After we finished, it was one of those songs that we finished in like, you know, Kenny, how it goes. The good stuff is like 30 minutes later, it's done, right? All the lyrics were written, the music, we had it. We just, nah, 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 nah. we were in New York at Tommy's Brownstone on the Upper West Side. And we just like finished the song, got it all done. And we recorded it on the cassette. And we looked at each other and we said, this is good, right? Is this any good? <laughs> I think this is good. Is this good? I think this is real good. I think oh that's a good God. chorus. Is this good? And so, and, but we were afraid to play it for Nugent, right? It's a ballad. Here we are in a band with Ted Nugent. And so we go into rehearsal. We go into rehearsal. We're like, all right, should we play it for him? We're like, okay. Ted, we wrote this song. He's like sitting in a chair, leaning back, you know, got his gun in his back. And he's like, you know, chewing on a toothpick like Ted does. And he's sitting there and he puts the cassette in and he's sitting there listening to it. And he just didn't move. He doesn't do anything. He just listened to the song. And then it comes and then the next, you know, and, then, and he listened to the whole song. And then he sits up and we're like, Tommy and I looked at it and we're like, oh boy, here it comes. Here comes the shit. Nugent's going to like get fucking go nuclear on us. So he goes, no, I think I know what this song needs. So we're going, oh boy. Oh, okay. He grabs his guitar and he goes, here's what I think he needs. I think it needs this right before the chorus. Like, we're just like, and Tommy and I looked at each other and he goes, that's exactly what it needs. That's, that's exactly right. So we, we cut it. It wasn't a problem. He loved it. And boom, it became like a big number one record. No kidding. That, yeah, I was going to ask about that song. That's like, I mean, it doesn't get any better. That's a massive course. Did Tommy write that himself and then brought it to you guys? You guys? No, no. Tommy and, I, Tommy and I sat down. I'll tell you how that song was written. Like I said, we were at Tommy's Brownstone. I was doing my laundry downstairs in his basement. And I'm doing my laundry. And I'm like uh, going... Anymore, it's a shame I got to. I'm just singing words and with that melody. And Tommy's upstairs and he's like, Hey, what's that? And I said, Oh, just something I'm just fooling around. He said, Come on up, come on up. And we go up in the studio and I start singing. We put it down real quick. We both came up with a bridge, you know, don't say goodbye. And like Tommy and I both, like at the same, you know, Tommy came up with, Can you take me high? And I'm like, Fly me over yesterday. Can you take me high? You know, and we just, and just said, Oh, good. That's a great chorus. Now we need a bridge. And it's like, and so we just came up with the bridge right away. Literally, I'm not kidding you, Kenny. The song was written in like 35, 40 minutes. Boom, it was done. And that was it. That's great. I love that. And, wh and what about like, you can still rock in America, which is, you know, what a cool beginning. Oh, dude. You know, and how did that come up? And who came up with that? Uh, 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 uh. Oh, and Don't Tell Me You Love Me. Yeah, but. Uh, uh, oh, that's Don't Tell Me You yeah, Love Me. Yeah, that's right. Don't Tell Me You Love Me. When Rock in America came about us. We're on tour with Sammy Hagar, right? We we're doing our first album. We released our Dawn Patrol record, and we were on tour with Hagar doing the uh, Three Lock Box. He was doing his Three Lock Box tour, and it was like, you know, 1983, all of 1983. We're out with him, and. All the magazines, Kenny, were like, you know, rock is dead. You know, it's like coming out of 1980, 1981, 1982. And, you know, rock is dead. The new music is coming in. It's like Blondie, The Cars, you know, Haircut 100, Flock of Seagulls, you know, all these bands. And I was reading all these things going, you know, rock is dead. And I'm like, where was Sammy? What? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're with Hagar, and everywhere we're playing with Hagar, there were thousands of people just, you know, rocking out, you know, just going crazy and, and going wild and everything. And we were sitting, I remember, we, I was, we were sitting in a bad, like, you know, economy lodge in, in like Springfield, Illinois, or something like that. And I'm like, oh, and I'm God. like, I'm reading these magazines and I'm going, rock is dead. I was like, as far as I'm concerned, you can still rock in America. And I went, wow, that's a great idea for a title. So I just wrote the song, brought it into Brad and Brad's like, you know, we just created the whole song. And that's the same thing that happened. Like on don't tell me you love me. I brought the song in and we decided we needed, you know how, like with Motown songs, they all start with something like to catch yourself yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. And we were a brand new band, right? Nobody ever heard of Night Ranger. We hadn't made a record or anything like that. So we did something we felt like that would jump out on the radio. You know, like how Motown used to do like, stop in the name of love. Beautiful. And you're like, oh, what's this? You turn it up on the radio or down, 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 down. You know, all this Motown. My, my girl. Yeah, my, my girl. girl. Exactly. Boom, exactly. Boom, right. Boom, boom, so, boom. you know, right away. It, exactly. So we needed something. We thought, what could we do where all of a sudden the records start, you know, people hear it on the radio and they go, what the hell is this? How about right off the bat, we just crock them in the mouth, man. How about we go, bum, 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 bum. You know, just freaking go for it. That's how the intro came about, you know, just taking a cue from our, our Motown brothers. That totally worked. And, uh, and it was so cool playing those songs. When we, we did that Kings of Chaos gig a while ago. And, you know, for people who don't know Kings of Chaos, it's like a super group and they have uh, guest singers and, and uh, Jack was one of them. So we got to play all those three songs. That was a blast. You and I playing together is like freaking I over the top. I'm working we're around each other, just like <laughs> looking at each other going, bah, 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 you know, just yeah. throwing it down and jumping and dancing. And oh, man, it's badass. That's what I was about to say, man. The thing is, that, like, you are so authentic. And I'm that same guy. I mean, this ain't an act. We don't put on a rock and roll costume. Well, personality. We're this way 24-7. And I think being authentic all the time and being exactly who you are, that's the way you get your best work done. Because you're not trying to second guess. You're not BSing yourself. You are being completely you. This is what I am. So your work is always going to be at 100%. You're always presenting 100%. And that's what I noticed about you. That's totally right. That even goes into songwriting, man. If you're authentic, if you really write down what's in your heart, in your soul, you know, I mean, when somebody writes a song and somebody writes lyrics, that's probably the closest glimpse into their soul as a person can see, man. You know, because you're you're laying it out there. You know what I mean? You're laying it out. Honestly, there there were times back in the '80s, like on one of our albums, I can't remember. I think it was like the Big Life album. I think that some of those songs we were like writing songs to what we thought people would like, as opposed to writing songs that were coming from our heart and our soul to make people feel it, you know, because that's what we did on all our, you know, all our other records. And I think that that, you know, you've got to do that. And that's what we did when we started back up with Night Ranger again, man. We did, we're all getting together in a room, we're jamming, we're doing our music from our heart and our whole soul. I mean, if some people don't get it, that's cool, but you know what I mean? It's real. And it's just what you're going back, going back to the fact that it's got to be real, man. It's got to be real. And it is. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And here's the thing. Even if they don't like it, people are feeling creatures. They're going to feel, oh my God, 
That is 100% real. That is real. They're going to feel what, whether they like it or not, it's a whole different thing. But that, I think you, you get your best work done by being exactly that, doing exactly what you just said. And I sense that from you. So thank you for emphasizing exactly what I'm talking about, because I sure felt it. Night Ranger, I mean, both these bands, I mean, do you think that your success was based on like that the songs you wrote were like radio friendly? And back then radio was the was the way to get your stuff heard. Was it they were radio friendly songs or was there more to it? The message? I mean, what do you think? You know, I think it was a combination of everything. I think right when we released Dawn Patrol and released Don't Tell Me You Love Me, MTV was brand new. I mean, I, I think at that point they had like eight videos or six videos that they were playing. And when we gave them, I had a, um, some friends that were going to the UCLA's film school and they checked out all the film equipment on the weekend. And we went and ghetto styled all over LA and filmed the video for Don't Tell Me You Love Me. And then he, in a studio, he made a little train track and we did this whole thing and everything like that. But I think that MTV, the fact that it was so new, I mean, when we gave them Don't Tell Me You Love Me, they started playing that thing like 14 times a day. I mean, dude, we were on tour with Hagar and we go into a town and people are recognize us, you know, like, hey, I just saw you on MTV because MTV was that brand new thing and everybody was checking it out and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, I'd love it, man. You were on MTV. You know, we were like TV stars. It was like, I think it, with Night Ranger, I think we had accessible songs. America and the world, really, everybody loves a, a great harmony and a chorus. And that's what we had. We had twin guitars. I mean, if you think about it, Kenny, our band, we were big Sin Lizzy big Sin Lizzy fans. All of us were. And if you think about it, I mean, we have like a bass player that sings, two lead guitars doing guitar harmonies, you know, and stuff like that. We just added a keyboard, you know what I mean? And it's like, so we, we kind of were doing these things. I think it was a combination of the fact that MTV was there with the fact that we could write, we wrote some really good radio, really good radio friendly songs. And we wrote songs that people felt and they could relate to. And I think that made it very successful. And we carried it on into the damn Yankees, the same thing, you know, with the damn Yankees and everything. Yeah, you could see how the, the same kind of business model. I mean, just everything you said, the way you put songs together, you had all the elements that people wanted to hear. And then you had that visual. Of course, MTV became the biggest game in town when this started. It was like, whoa, you can actually, you don't have to go to a concert to see somebody. You can actually watch it on TV. It was a bit of a two-edged sword because... And first, all you had to do was be a musician, right? You could just be a musician. Now you got to be a songwriter. Now you got to be a poet. Let's be a poet too, because you got to like write lyrics and you got to come up with all that. Let's do that. And now, <laughs> yeah, you have to act on MTV. <laughs> I mean, it's a, so it got, it was like, God dang, what else do we have to do here? I just want to get up and meet girls and play guitar. What the hell? You know? <laughs> Dude, I remember my first video. I was nervous. It was Hertz. Was it? No, Hand to Hold On To with Mellencamp. We had a, a stone quarry in Bloomington, Indiana. And just the whole concept that were cameras were all over me, especially when they do those close-up shots. You know, it's like, oh, man, I was like, I didn't know how to look cool in front of a camera. It took a long time, but that was like just all new, right? You didn't think, of, you didn't worry about how you looked or how you dressed. And I definitely hadn't got my cool together at all. Yeah, I mean, when you're young, it's all about the instrument. Yeah, how do I play? How do I sound? Then all of a sudden, you got to have a thing. What And talk about being authentic. You got to figure out who you are so that you know how to dress that looks how you are and how you feel. So it, it's a whole package. And it takes time. It does. And like I said, all of a sudden, you have to like how 
videos ended up from being just like performance videos to now like you're acting, you're becoming an actor, you've got lines, you have to interact with this girl, you have to do this, you have to have a love scene. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you're, you're probably thinking, God, I wish I hadn't written that love scene. I know, right? <laughs> oh, man. When you write songs, do you have, I mean, you sounds like you already answered my question. Sometimes it's the lyrics, sometimes it's a melody. I mean, do you play, do you write on piano, guitar? Is it always bass or, I mean, is it just every which way? It is every which way. Like originally I was a guitar player. Like my parents gave me the guitar when I was really young. And when I was about 13, I, we formed a band with my junior high school buddies and everything like that. Can you see this? There we are. Yeah. That's me. Oh my God. That's, oh my God. This is me. What was the name of it? Where am I? I love those first bands. That's me right there. We were the nomads, of ah, course, boy, right? The nomads. So anyway, so anyway, at that time, there were about 6,500 rhythm guitar players and nobody played bass. And so I talked my parents into like, okay, I'll play bass. And so my parents, I talked them into getting me a bass guitar and a bass amp. And so I ended up, that's, you know, I ended up being the bass player just out of, out of necessity more than anything else. But songwriting, I write on guitar. I play like ghetto piano. Like I can feel my way around piano and stuff like that. Like when you close your eyes, I wrote that on a piano when we were, we were actually doing the um, Midnight Madness album. I was in the back room at Sense Recording Studio, which is down in LA. What's it called now? I forgot what it was called, but Harry Maslin. Harry Maslin did all the stuff down there. But anyway, I was just in the back room banging it like, when you close your eyes, do you dream about me? When you close your eyes, do you dream about me? And I sang it for the guy that owned the studio, Harry Maslin. And he was the producer of Bowie and Air Supply and all these other people. And Harry said, he's from New York. He's like, that's a real good one. You got to put that on the record. You should finish it. I'm like, you think so? Okay. So, so we finished it. It became one of our big hits too and stuff like that. So it's like piano, guitar. I really don't write on bass. You know what I mean? I, I, I kind of mostly guitar, piano. Sometimes, sometimes lyrics come first, sometimes a melody. Sometimes I'll just start singing a chorus and then I'll flesh it out and stuff like that. So I bring it in from everywhere. But do, do you actually sit down like, oh God, I got to write a song. So you go and go into your music room and say, okay, let's, or do you wait for an idea just to come and you log it down? I can't do that, that Nashville thing. I've done it before and stuff like that. I can't do that nine to five writing business. I think you've got to be inspired. And that's part of being authentic. That's what I was telling you. You just, you can't, you don't, you don't force what you feel. You feel what you feel. That's it. Kenny, I sense a theme, a theme in this podcast, authenticity. That's right. You're right. Yeah. So I try to do that. I, I can't do that, man. Basically on the road, I really don't write alone on the road. Just a few songs, like I said, Rock and American and, and a few other ones. But mostly all that stuff gets into my brain and I come home off the road and I'm sitting home for like a couple of weeks. And then I'm like, you know, look at my wife. What do I do today? And she's like, I'm not your freaking road manager, man. Okay. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's like, what do you expect? A, a freaking note underneath your door telling you what you're going to do today? In about two or three weeks, I just, ideas start coming up in my head. And so I start recording them and laying them down and writing them and, you know, dictating them and stuff like that. That's, that's how I end up writing most of the song. What was on your turntable when you were a kid? I mean, your parents, sounds like they played a lot. I mean, because, you know, that stuff influences your whole melody idea. You know, were they playing like Broadway musicals or what was on the turntable? I'll tell you what was on the turntable. My older brother, who, who I mentioned, passed away. Jimmy, my brother Jimmy, who died back in 1977 when we first were recording our first Rubicon album. 
real tragic. You know, overdose, man, sort of a bunch of heroin like it was coke and never woke up. You know, one of those sad stories where in the mid 70s, the guy's a guy's all like, you know, messed up and stuff. And you're like, hey, man, just knock it off, man. You'll be good. You know, now you'd like put him in rehab. You do this, you do that. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, back then. Yeah, was, back then it was all new. It was all new. Yeah. That was the thing. Yeah, back then you're like, hey, new. man, knock that shit off, you know, or something like that. And it was like, that didn't work. What was I saying? What were we talking about? We are talking about what was influencing. What was? The- oh, yeah. The music yeah. that was playing was my brother. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got, I, I thought of my brother and I thought of the song Goodbye because- I wrote that song about my brother, you know, like I never had, I never had a chance to say goodbye to him. And so I wrote that song all about, but anyway, he was listening to all this. When I was growing up, I was listening to like the cow sills, you know, the rain, the park and other things. And, and like the monkeys, I dug the monkeys and all that kind of stuff. But my brother, my brother was two and a half years older than me. He was like, you know, we lived in Palm Springs at the time, Palm Desert. You know, he was listening to the doors, Hendrix. Big brother. I mean, he was listening to like heavier stuff. So I started hearing all that stuff too. You know, I think growing up, I listened to so much pop music. And in that era, man, in the late sixties, I mean, think about it. All those bands like, you know, the strawberry alarm clock, incense and peppermint, strawberry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all the bands like, uh, and then alone comes Mary. Mary. Association. Association. Yeah, yeah. And all these bands are like, imagine me and you. I do. The Turtles and all these bands. It was all like pop music. I can't see me loving nobody. All this pop music was just like, I was engulfed in all this pop music. And I think that's what, got me to, you know, when I started writing songs, it was like, you know, when you close your eyes, do you dream about me? You know, you can still rock in a mat, you know, and, you know, don't tell me, you know, all those, all those kind of songs. You Just know? melody, a lot of melody. A lot yeah. of melody. And like Simon and Garfield. A lot of I was listening to Simon the and Garfield. The Beatles. Oh, no, the Beatles. The Beatles. The Beatles. Dude. Come on. Here, where, where is it? Can you see it here? My Ringo sticks. My Ringo oh star. Oh my God. My Ringo, look, look where he hit. Look where he hits, Kenny. He hits right here. Wow. Right here in the middle. Wow. When I played with Ringo, we did that VH1 Storytellers and all that stuff. You know, I, he gave me these sticks and stuff like that. But all his hits are right in the, it's like, that's crazy. When he's hitting that symbol, man, yeah. it's like right there instead of up there. Like, so he's not, you know, he's yeah. not he's like, dun, dun, dun. it's like uh, 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 right there. Actually, probably get more power. It's closer to your yeah. hand. God. Well, yeah. Whatever he does is, is working. Yeah. But the, you're right about the Beatles. The, Beatles were a huge, my first record, my first record I ever bought was the 45 of, I want to hold your hand. And on the opposite side, I saw her standing there, you know, it was the 45 with the cover, black and white cover of them in their little Nehru jackets. And the, you know, McCartney's with a cigarette and, you know, they're all standing there like this and stuff like that. That was my very first record. I bought it at like, you know, a Sears and Roebuck or a, a five and dime store in Indio, California in 1964. You know, oh, my dad, my dad, I'm playing the record. And then we got Meet the Beatles, right? I'm playing the Beatles record. And my dad said, yeah, and my dad goes, oh, man, six months, you'll never hear about those guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I tell you. Oh, my God, that is good. Yeah. So you're kind of like me. You have the touring life. You got the studio life. Do you prefer one over the other, playing live versus being in the studio, making records? Do you have a preference or you like both? I'm okay with the studio like, it's all right. Like, like you, Kenny, I've lived basically all my adult life, either on a stage or in a recording studio. You know what I mean? So I'll walk into a recording studio and it's like home for me. I have no, there's no red light fever. 
Right. Like, you know, I mean, just like, let's go, you know, let's, let's do this thing. I love playing live. I love the audience. I love the people. I love the fact that we all get together before we go on stage, you know, do the hands together. We're like, let's go out there. Let's say this because the way I look at it, we'll play with big bands. There's other big bands. There's other famous bands. We might not be this and that and the other. But when we walk on that stage, Night Ranger is the baddest motherfuckers on the planet, you know, and we own this stage. This is our stage and we're going to freaking own it. And that's the way we all walk out when we do it. And then we just throw it and we just throw down and we give everything we have. Night Ranger has always given 100, 110% every time we get up on stage. And none of us gets all like toasted before the stage. I mean, one time before we even had our record deal, Kenny, it was great. We played a club in Sacramento. It was like a New Year's or something like that. And we all like, we're all like, oh, it's New Year's, right? So we're drinking, we're like, you know, and everybody's just having a wild time and, and going crazy and everything like that. And we got up there and we were so shitty. We were so freaking bad. I mean, the worst, the worst that it could ever be. The next day we heard it and we were like, oh my God, never again. It'd be wild after the shows, it'd be wild, everything, but never before or during a show did we ever, ever like get high, get loaded, get drunk or anything like that. We'd always, we'd always say, but we'd, we'd never walk on that stage like high or drunk or something like that. I totally relate because I mean, I'm one of those guys, if I have one drink, it sounds like I had one drink. If I have two drinks, it sounds like I had two drinks. And once I went through a couple experiences or a hangover, I was full ho, no way. Cause you know why? Because the show, the performance is more important than partying. The partying's fun, but you don't want to party and then go on stage because then all of a sudden playing ain't fun. Hey, man, we learned that the hard way on our very first tour. You go out there and all those people have saved up their partying hours for your concert, okay? Like maybe they haven't done anything for a month or a month and a half or two months, but man, they're going to freaking blow it out at your concert. So our first tour with Hagar, it was like that. We'd get out there and everybody be like, ah, let's party afterwards. And it's like, let's go and we'd go on there we'd be out there and like that night and then the next night we're in another town it's like hey everybody wants you to party with them okay let's go and then the next night and the next night night after about four or five days we're all like we're like uh uh and after a while <laughs> you realize dude you realize you can't do that you literally can't do it you can't do it we learned we learned very early on on sammy's tour we learned early on that you can't party every night that's for sure oh that's and he doesn't party at all ever does he who's that <laughs> Sammy. Oh, Sammy. Oh, yeah, right. Are you oh, kidding me? Those guys are out with them now. There's tequila everywhere, man. There's a bar in the back. There's bar on stage. And, yeah. uh, and, and then he got, oh, yeah. he got pissed at us because we had a different tequila in our dressing room. And Mikey, Michael Anthony, Mike, Mike and Vic were coming over in our dressing room. And we're drinking our tequila, too. And he's like, I'm going to freaking throw you guys out. You guys got my guys drinking that other tequila. What are you doing? He was like laughing. But I mean, it was like, oh, yeah, the boys are drinkers, oh, yeah. man. Them boys are drinking. Oh, oh, yeah. And Michael is the type of guy, because I played with Chickenfoot. You know, I did a tour with them on their second album. Michael's the type of guy, it doesn't matter how much he drinks. He's always perfectly in tune, perfectly in time. I can't believe it. It's like, what? I can't believe it. I don't know. I can't, I'm not that guy. I know. But he's like, fine. It's nothing. We're on the Nothing there. It's totally. We're on the side of the stage with Mike, and they're having shots. And I'm taking a shot every time he takes <laughs> a shot. I can barely walk off the stage. And he's up there know, playing know, a freaking bass solo and singing. I know, I know. And I'm like, I know. Are I'm, you kidding me? 
crazy. I know. Crazy. Unbelievable. So, you know, with all the stuff you've done, and I, it's kind of a weird question, but is there one thing or a couple of things that like really go, whoa, that was one of the heaviest moments of my career that really stands out? People ask me that and I'm like, huh? Where do I begin? But I thought maybe you would have one of those. Do you have one of those? This was the big one. This was amazing. This thing changed my life. I think there were two things that happened. One, we were with the damn Yankees and we're playing and we're playing, I don't know, some Coliseums packed, sold out 15,000 people or something like that. And Ted was doing a solo. And I swear to God, Kenny, I actually felt like I left the planet or I left this plane. Like he was in there going, and doing all this stuff. And I'm up there, Jay. And all of a sudden, you know, music is jamming and it's loud and everything. And it's like, well, and all of a sudden it was like, and I was just like, like I was floating. And it was like almost, I swear to God, man, it was almost like an out of body, like experience. And it was just like, I was floating like on a cloud. Like it was the strangest thing, you know, and all of a sudden I'm back in and like, what just happened? And it was with Ted. Ted was playing a solo and that's never happened to me before. And it's never happened again, but it was, he was doing something. He had, he had a note, a sonic thing, because Ted, when he plays, it's all heart and soul. When Nooch plays, it's all heart and soul, man. There's nothing but pure heart and soul. And just like, he just is, he goes and he goes there. You know, he goes to that spot that people can rarely get to, you know, and he does. But that did it to me, that. And then there's one other time when I was playing with Ringo and we were, we were rehearsing in London and it was um, me and let me see who else was. Well, we had a whole bunch of guys in the band. Uh, Simon Kirk was playing drums with us because he played drum. You know, Simon played with Ringo and a lot of stuff. Right. And so Ringo could come out front and sing, you know, like, you know, and stuff like that. Joe Walsh was there and we're all jamming. This is where we're um, rehearsing for like VH1 storytellers to, to make the record. And Ringo hadn't come in yet. We're up there and we're just fooling around with song. And all of a sudden we start doing Ticket to Ride, right? And nobody's on the drums. The drums are sitting there, but I'm up there playing bass like, dun, dun, boom, boom, dun. and I'm up, I think I'm going to be sad. I'm singing it. The guitars are playing and Joe Walsh is playing it. You know, we're just having fun, right? And Ringo and Barbara Bach walk in. He walks in the back room and Ringo's like, walks back with his hands behind his back. And he's like, oh, hello, how are you? Hello. He walks in the back room, all of a sudden he, he hears what we're playing and he runs up, he runs the whole length of the studio, runs into the drums and gets behind the drums and starts going, and I'm sitting there going, I think I'm going to be sad. I'm looking over my shoulder and that's Ringo freaking star and me play. I mean, we're playing ticket to ride and I'm singing it. And I swear to God at that moment, I said, I'm done. I've gone to heaven. I've accomplished everything as a musician you could ever accomplish. I sat there and, and there we are like doing Ticket to Ride. And it was just like, it was like, that was almost an out-of-body experience. I mean, I'm talking about now my hairs on my arms raising. Dude, you know, I did the tribute. Well, I've, I played Ringo a couple of times. It is uncanny how nobody sounds like him. I mean, that's Ringo Starr. I'm doing gold double drums and I was freaking, that's the drummer from the Beatles. It sounds like the Beatles when he plays. It's, it's a feel. He's got that middle pocket. He's not like ahead of it, not behind it. He's so, he's right, right in that middle. Oh my God, you're right. And people go always, oh, oh, he's the luckiest guy in the world. Bullshit. He's a freaking amazing freaking drummer is what he is. 
It's deeper. It's like he's half between swing, half between straight. The bottom line is he's one of the most musical, creative drummers I've ever heard in my life. Uh, he's a musician. He's a musician that plays drums. Unbelievable. I mean, and I did that tribute, you know, a CBS special, The Night They Changed America. And I got to play four songs with him. But I mean, he was out there the whole night. I was playing with everybody. And at the end of the night, I mean, it was like, I mean, I was, you know, doing something, you know, that very song, you know, something in the way, you know, it's really slow. It's like 63 beats a minute. Joe Walsh is playing it. And I mean, every note has got to be just perfect. And I'm thinking, Ringo's out there. He knows every fill I'm doing, every lick. It was like, you better play it right. <laughs> and everybody knows his parts. I mean, there's only one way to do it. And you know, that starts off the way I did it. Start with your left hand. There you go. There's Ringo and me. Yeah. Rehearsing a thing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he told me once his favorite drum thing that he's ever done was rain. I'm like, rain? Wow. So next time, listen to rain. It's like, think about it. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, some, yeah. He said that was his favorite Beatles track. Isn't that wild? Wow. Thanks for telling me that. That's that's incredible. You don't have to answer this, but I, I heard that recently you had a little bit of a health scare. And if you don't want to talk about that, you don't have to. But you sure seem very healthy right now. We were down on a show. We were getting ready to play in Anaheim. And suddenly I started feeling like really weird. You know what I mean? I was like indigestion and everything. Also, my arms started tingling. And I just told my road manager, take me to a hospital. The doctors, they said it was like the canary in the coal mine. It was like a heart thing. And it, one of my arteries is blocked, so they fixed that, and, and I'm I'm all fixed. And they said, "Hey, dude, we fixed you," but it was like the canary in the coal mine. Like nothing serious happened, but you're aware of what's going on now. And I'm like, "Damn, that's amazing." So I'm like, "Mr. Mediterranean diet, I've lost like ten pounds. I'm a little healthy. I'm freaking running every day. I'm working out. I'm on the trip. I'm on the on the elliptical machine. I'm on this and every hotel. You always looked healthy to me." You didn't look overweight. No, I, I mean, the doctor said to me, the doctor said, dude, it's like you're one of those people that just snuck under the radar. My family, like my dad had heart, you know, he died of a heart attack. And uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's go. like genetics. And he said, so this just, you'll never have an issue if you do everything right now. But this was like the canary in the coal mine. It lets you know that you need to make sure you're cool, you know, so... There you go. So yeah. how did you change your diet? What's your diet? Like no meat? Is that what it is? More like vegetarian? Yeah, no meat. Cut out all sweets. I don't drink. You know, I never really drank any. I remember it was a while to have a shot of tequila before the show. What about, so was it a triglyceride, a fatty sugar? You know, all that plaque forms in your arteries. And I had like a 95% blocked artery. Woo! Coming off a smaller yeah. one, you know, but it was still like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, something's not working right. That doctor part in you, that pre-med guy went, beep, 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 something's wrong, get me to the hospital. If you yeah. hadn't done it and tried to like, you know, play the show, try to tough it out. Yeah. Or yeah, tough it out. You can add a heart attack. I'm telling you right now, man, if you feel something, I mean, I know my body, you know your body. I mean, people know their body. Something weird's happening. It's like, that's what I just said. Let's go right now. You know, I was in Anaheim. There's like a hospital every two blocks. So we were right there, you know, like in five minutes and off. Oh, here's a hospital. So that's what, that's what happened. So the band laid off. We rescheduled several shows and we laid off for about seven weeks. So, you know, just to- Oh, make, that's not bad. Yeah, no, just to make sure everything was fine. But we've been back to playing. I've, you know, I think we've done 
10 or 11 or 12, 12 shows since we've been back working again. There's no, there's no issue at all and everything like that. You probably feel better now. You know, I do. You know, I feel better that I know what I'm doing. And I know that there's a, you know, there's stuff, man. You got to watch stuff and you have no idea. Like I had no idea. I didn't see anything like that coming. So, so it's important to like listen to your body and check it out and all that kind of stuff. I get massive blood work every year just to see where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I'm like stupid. I mean, my gen- I, I want to say five years ago, my genetic age was like 23 or something. But things can change very fast because your body's always going through changes. That's why it's good to get physicals. Blood work tells everything. You know, it doesn't lie. So I'm all good. We're all healthy. We're rocking. We're on tour this summer with uh, the Party Gras, Mardi Gras, Party Gras with uh, Brett Michaels. We're going all over, playing all the sheds and everything like that, starting up in about two and a half weeks. And and it's just like, you know, it's going to be killer. We've got tons and tons of shows. Um, lots of sh- I think we're playing about 75, 80 shows this year. Oh, that's awesome, man. You know, the cool thing, you can always say, hey, everybody, bring me along because you can have all my drinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More for it. you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I know. Uh, they love that stuff. All right, so I want to ask you one more thing. I mean, so you like me. We've done music our entire life. It's what makes us happy mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, every which way. We're blessed. And when we're happy, everybody around us hopefully is happy. The ripple effect of our joy affects everybody. But if you didn't do music, would there, is there anything you'd go like, I mean, maybe it's pre-med, I don't know. What would you do if it, if it wasn't music? Is there anything that you haven't done or are you just saying, nah, I'm all in. This is what I'm doing until I drop. Man, and it's all I've done all my adult life, even my juvenile life. Child. And I'm, yeah, a child. I mean, I've, it's all I've ever done and it's what I loved. I mean, I don't know anything else that I'd ever want to do. It's enabled us to just be free, you know what I mean? Free to free to create, free to, to do whatever your mind comes up with and stuff like that. It's like an artist, like painting. And, and I think it's the most blessed thing that, that happened. And, you know, I, I thank God every day, you know, I feel like we're blessed. You know, I feel like I'm blessed. Just every day I get to wake up and what? Think about a song, write a song, get up on stage, make people happy. I mean, I've written songs, Kenny, where people have written me letters saying, you know, like a kid said, I read your lyrics and I was about ready to commit suicide. And I ended up not because you inspired me to keep going and keep like, I mean, maybe that's the whole reason I'm even a, a musician was to save that one person's life. That would be worth it. Yeah. That would be worth yep. it right there. Yeah. You save one life. Are you kidding? Yeah. A, a life? Yeah. Yeah. I just feel blessed. I, you know, I wake up every morning and pinch myself and, and thank God that, you know, that I'm alive and, and thank God that everything is is great. I have a great family. I have, you know, two grandsons, you know, two sons, a great daughter-in-law, a wife. Like I said, Molly of 46 years. You know, Molly. I feel blessed. If music stopped tomorrow, I wouldn't stop playing music. You know what I mean? If, if our band stopped tomorrow, I'd say, you know, I'd call up you and go, should we form something? Yeah. Should we be playing yeah. somewhere? Let's do it. Or, you know, I get mad. You know, we do more Kings of Chaos. Or I do another yeah. t- a Talk Matsumoto group, a TMG thing. Or I get together with Michael Cardelloni. We'd form another kind of thing. Ted came out. I played with Ted about three weeks ago at a private event in Vegas. And he's coming to our show in Michigan. We're playing up in Upper Michigan in, I think, in coming up in about, oh, oh, the 3rd of uh, July. And Ted had so much fun when we played together. He's like, Come on, I'll come. I'm going to bring my whole family. I'm going to be up there because I have a house up there and, and we're up there for the 4th of July. So 
we'll do damn Yankee song. We'll do coming of age. We'll do cat scratch fever. I'll come on stage. And I've said, you're in, you know? So we're like, we're like excited about it. You know, I mean, it's, that's music. It's like when you and I get together, man, it inspires us. We talk, we laugh, we joke, we play, we just throw down. We do all that kind of stuff. That's what I'll do till the day I die. I'm with you, dude. That's my answer to why would I change anything? Somebody once said to me, hey, you got a five-year plan. I went, uh, keep doing what I'm doing. And after that, for another five years, right? Of course. Hey, well, dude, listen, when you see Ted Nugent, tell him I say hi. He always said, man, you, I need your backbeat behind me. I says, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you do, Tim. I'll tell him that. I'll tell I'll hit him yeah, up to, I'll hit him up today and tell him that I was, you know, that we were on the thing. Yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna text listen, him right now. Well, shit, man. Yeah, text him. Text I'm him. I'm gonna text him right now. Tell him tell Kenny him. says, hey, I'm gonna get him on the podcast. Say you're gonna be on my podcast. Shit, man. I'll I'll do it. I'll tell him about it. You should come up to Traverse City, Michigan when we play July 5th. Oh, come on. That's one of the most beautiful places I know, right? in the United States. That's where we're gonna it's be. The, how about the water? The water up oh. there. It's like Turquoise. It's the best. Turquoise. It's the best. It's the best. That's one of uh, that's one of the best kept secrets in America is up there. Of course, you don't want to be up there in January or February. No, but no. It's beautiful. Listen, Jack, man, so cool that you came on. Man, I love you, and I'm so glad that uh, just talking to you gets me so excited. We're both so positive and so into what we're doing, so it's a joy to even have a conversation with you. So thanks for making the time, and I'll see you. I'll 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 see you down the road, Kenny. You and I have a connection. I don't know what it is, but we got a serious connection, and that connection is going to last us for the rest of our lives, man. So if you need me for anything, you got it, okay? You know, I'm, that's where I'm at. So you guys take care. I love your podcast, and I tell Ted he's got to get on this thing. All right, man. All right, take care, Jack. See you. You got it. <laughs>